0: Uh, Martin Luther wasn't burnt at the stake as a heretic. I did actually tell you that last week, so that you wouldn't spend a week in suspense. Uh, And if you weren't here last week, uh, then you may not know that today I'm presenting the fourth in a five-part series of sermons uh, on Martin Luther and the European Reformation, in preparation for the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of his 95 Theses uh, on October 31st, 1517. Well, Martin's writings had brought him into sharp dispute with the Roman Catholic Church in general and with Pope Leo X in particular. And as we've seen, Martin's complaint was not so much, hey, Pope Leo, you're wrong, Rather, Martin's complaint was, hey Pope Leo, the Bible says you're wrong. And uh, last week we saw how the arguments flew backwards and forwards and up to and including a a kind of a a royal commission into Martin's teaching. It was held in Germany in front of bishops and cardinals and in, in front of the emperor. And it was called the Diet of Worms and that happened in 1521. Now, you see, the Roman Catholics were outraged that Martin had dared to contradict the Pope. Now, they were not remotely interested in entering into any kind of theological debate with him. They weren't calling, uh, they were calling him to recant, not so much meaning, Hey, Martin, change your mind, but rather meaning, Martin, stop being so arrogant as to contradict those whom God has set in authority. Above you. And last week we saw how the essential issue came down really to one idea. Uh, one idea that in the years since uh, we've we've started calling sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And that one idea uh, kind of contains three separate ideas. And the first is authority. The Bible alone sits in the place of supreme authority with respect to matters of faith and doctrine. That's not to suggest for a moment that the Bible is the only authority we need in church. Uh, we use all kinds of different authorities, common sense, uh, traditions, uh, uh, um, Holy Spirit speaking in many and various ways. Uh, but the Bible is, is, is the, is the ruler against which everything is measured. The Bible alone sits in the place of highest authority, the final and supreme authority in matters of Christian belief and conduct. Second idea is clarity. The Bible is not an obscure book that only trained priests are allowed to read and that only the Pope is allowed to interpret. It is clear and easy to read. Its message is clear. That's that's not to suggest that there's no place for preaching and teaching it's not to suggest that there's no place for the careful training of those who will carefully train others. But it is to strongly affirm that the ministry of a clerical class of teachers is not essential to how the Holy Spirit actually uses the good book to draw people into relationship with God through Jesus Christ by way of conversion and by way of discipleship Uh, to Christ in the power of the Spirit. And the third idea is sufficiency. The Bible contains all that is necessary for salvation. That's not to suggest that the Bible uh, teaches us everything we need to know about everything. But it is to say that the Bible teaches us everything we need to know in order to be saved and the Bible teaches us everything we need to know in order to grow up mature and complete in Christ, his disciples, his people in this age, until he comes again. Well, last week uh, we saw how uh, the Roman Catholic theologians, represented in Martin's personal experience in particular by the theologian, um, they actually had some powerful and compelling arguments Uh, counter-arguments to make against Luther. They argued that Scripture is not the highest authority. The church is, because it is the church that gave birth to the Bible, not the other way around, they said. Furthermore, they said Scripture is not sufficient. The New Testament, reasonably, is only a small subset of all the things the apostles taught. And therefore, the Pope, as the ordained successor to Peter, as the Bishop of Rome, he may likewise authoritatively add to the teachings and traditions of the church. And lastly, Scripture is not clear. And therefore, the interpretation of Scripture is to be the church's job, ultimately the Pope's job, for the reasons just described. Well, we're going to continue thinking about these arguments today. But returning to the Diet of Worms, it's finding, the day after Martin spoke, it's finding was that Luther is a notorious heretic, and he was under imperial ban from ever teaching again. The Diet of Worms, in condemning Luther, was condemning him not because... He was wrong, as could be determined uh, uh, or judged from, from Scripture or indeed from church councils, but, but rather that he had contradicted the official church. He contradicted the Pope. And that was something that those in authority could not even think about without thinking that that meant the end of civilization as they knew it. Had to be squashed. Martin was to return to Wittenberg. And it was assumed by many, in fact it was probably assumed by most, that actually, what would actually happen is that he'd get killed. Uh, Either uh, he'd be lynched by those loyal to the Pope in Germany, or perhaps he'd be kidnapped and taken to Rome, where he'd be burnt at the stake as a heretic. What actually did happen was that, yes, actually he was kidnapped. But he was kidnapped by a friend. Uh, Prince Frederick the Wise, Elector of Saxony, a man who's actually appeared in our story a number of times so far. And Fred arranged for a clandestine fake kidnapping so that Luther could go into hiding, a secret place being the only safe place for Martin. And Fred took him to a castle fortress known as Wartburg. And what happened there in hiding is that Martin devoted himself to something revolutionary, something wonderful. What he devoted himself to was the translation of the Greek New Testament into everyday, ordinary German. You see, throughout the Middle Ages and medieval times, into the early Renaissance, the only Bible that people had access to uh, was a Latin translation uh, that may or may not have been in your local church. And uh, um, its name, the Vulgate, comes from the Latin, Wistio uh, Vulgata, meaning the commonly used version, just as uh, nowadays we use the NIV, uh, the New International Version. And I guess they probably referred to it as the VV version. Uh, and seeing as in Latin... These uh, are pronounced as W's. They probably <laughs> referred to it as the Weebly translation. Uh, that's a joke uh, for all the theologians and under fives in the audience. <clears throat> well, the Vulgate, the Vulgate, the Vulgate was um, largely the work of one man, a man named Jerome. Uh, and in and around the year 380 AD, uh, um, he, did, he translated into, uh, the, the, the Hebrew and Greek uh, manuscripts into Latin, and thereafter it was the translation used by the church universally for the next 1,100 years. Um, And the reason for that is that Latin actually served Europe really well uh, for more than a millennium. And in all of those years, it was the international language of academia, of, uh, of diplomacy, of the church, and of trade. The problem was, of course, was that the vast sea of serfs and peasants didn't understand it. And we remember that the church believed that such people didn't need to to, to know what was actually in the Bible. They didn't need to know what was in the Bible at all. What they needed to know was what the church taught, which may or may not be based on the Bible. But what the church taught was authoritative. That's what they needed to know. Uh, And so the vast majority of common folk had very little idea as to what the Bible actually said, except that perhaps it was seen through the lens of papal interpretation. But but then things began to change. Um, The peasant classes, um, the non-aristocracy, the the non-landed people, um, they were becoming richer and better educated. Martin himself, as we've seen, he came from hard-working peasant stock Um, But he had a university education. His parents saved hard, sent him to university, ended up with a PhD. The printing press had made books suddenly common and affordable. Literacy was on the rise. Martin Luther was part of a movement of people uh, that all felt, we need to put the Bible into the hands of ordinary people, and we need to do that in the vernacular. In other words, in the ordinary language of ordinary people, whatever it is that they speak at home. One such person was John Wycliffe uh, in England, a long time before before Martin. Um, And he translated the Vulgate into Middle English in 1382. Uh, Wycliffe's followers uh, in England were known as the Lollards. And they, like Luther, they attacked all of the non-biblical beliefs of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, including the authority, indeed, indeed even the existence of the papacy in Rome. Wycliffe was clear that the Bible, not the Pope, was the only source of supreme authority in matters of faith and doctrine. He was declared a heretic in 1415, uh, some 14 years after his death by way of a stroke, and his books were burned, and the Lollards were persecuted in England uh, for well over a further century Um, the punishment for being found in possession of any portion of Scripture in English was death. So for well over a century, what I'm doing right now carried the death penalty, being found in possession of any portion of Scripture in English. Well, uh, another thing that was happening was nationalism was on the rise. Uh, People were beginning to think of their nationality, English, Spanish, French, German, Italian, uh, they think about their nationality as fundamental to their identity and therefore also to their loyalty. And one further influence to mention is the rise of humanism. Humanism uh, was a late medieval movement, but it was basically a new attitude to life. It was a secular movement, not a theological one, one that put the human being in the center of human experience. It was passionate about education, rational thought, common sense quashing superstition. Um, and it was especially passionate about free investigation. The humanist movement included a, a renewed interest in the writings of the classical world, uh, including the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. And in the year 1516, a humanist named Erasmus published the New Testament in uh, the original Greek, according to the uh, the manuscripts of that time. He published the New Testament in its original Greek for the use of scholars, theologians, and historians. And that volume, published by Erasmus, uh, became one of Martin Luther's most important working tools. And so, beginning with the New Testament, Martin translated the Bible into German, not from the Vulgate, Latin translation, but directly from the original Hebrew and Greek. A German Bible for ordinary Germans. And Martin's interest was not to create something for academics, but rather Uh, something for ordinary Germans, peasants, farmers, miners, a Bible in their language that they could understand in children. And the New Testament was first published in 1522, the year after the Diet of Worms, with the complete Bible being published 12 years later in 1534. Well, at about that same time, uh, an Englishman named William Tyndale, also working in Germany, not far away from, from Martin Luther, he was in exile. England was too dangerous a place for him to be. Uh, he was doing exactly the same thing. He was translating the Bible into everyday English from the Greek and Hebrew uh, manuscripts. Um, and the Tyndale Bible uh, was printed in 1535. Tyndale was inspired by Luther, and he had a copy of his 1522 German New Testament. Well, for his trouble, uh, William Tyndale was convicted of heresy, and uh, he was strangled to death uh, whilst tied at a stake, and then his body was burnt at that stake in 1536. Uh, However, the Tyndale Bible would eventually make a massive contribution to the King James Bible, first published in 1611, uh, roughly the same time as Shakespeare uh, is putting on his 33rd play, The Tempest. Well, given all that information, clearly translating the Bible into the vernacular is a pretty dangerous thing to do. Why Why were these men so passionate about it that they pursued it at the risk of their lives, in fact, actually many times at the cost of their lives. Why did they do that? Well, William Tyndale, he he gives us um, an answer. Uh, He realized, just like Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and so many others, he realized that the things taught by the medieval Roman Catholic Church didn't even faintly resemble the Christian gospel taught in Scripture. Um, Speaking of how priests were trained, William Tyndale said, They have ordained that no man shall look on Scripture. That is to say the Bible. They have ordained that no man shall look on Scripture until he be nozzled in heathen learning. Uh, In other words, be led by the nose, being forced into uh, a non-Christian way of thinking. Until he be nozzled in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles, with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of Scripture. Another clergyman asserted to Tyndale. We had better be without God's laws than the Pope's. Uh, That's a clear way of saying, that's a clear way of saying, we need the Pope, we don't need the Bible. Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. And the reformers wanted to save and arm and empower the masses of Europe so that they could understand the gospel for themselves, straight from scripture, and so be saved and empowered. Well, it all has to do with the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is a message from God. Uh, It is good news from God. Uh, To believe it is to be saved. To not believe it or to depart from it, uh, is to be lost. To believe is to be set free. To not believe it is to be enslaved. To believe is eternal life. To be in unbelief is to stand condemned. This message, saved by grace, by grace alone, through faith, not by works, by grace through faith in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, justified before God on the basis of faith and faith alone, saved by grace alone, justified by faith alone. Incredibly important message. Obviously, the eternal welfare of human beings depends upon these truths being known, and therefore God's saving work in the universe depends upon these truths being known. And therefore, ultimately, the welfare of the entire creation depends upon these truths being known. If that is true, it should not surprise us that there is enormous spiritual power, not infinite, but enormous spiritual opposition to these truths being known. A a vast but not infinite power available to anyone who decides they want to distort or suppress these truths. And that power is the power of religion. If you can persuade people that their eternal destiny is actually in their own hands, that in effect they can save themselves by what they actually do, if, if you can get people to believe that message, then actually what, what you really do is get them to put you in a position of ultimate authority in their lives you will have them as your slaves. And that's been happening forever. The first time it happened is described in Genesis chapter 3, but it's been happening merrily ever since. And one example of this particular phenomenon occurred very soon after the Christian gospel began to move out of Judea. You see, Paul was moving through uh, the lands that today we call Turkey, um, uh, and he was preaching the gospel. The gospel, Jesus died on the cross in your place to pay the price for your sins. Put your faith, therefore, in what God has done for you, not in what you're doing for God. Keep trusting Jesus to save you as your Lord and Savior. Put him in the place of authority and he will keep saving you. He will free you from sin and death and judgment. Put Jesus in the place of authority and he will set you free. Well, it didn't take long for spiritual opposition to arise. Some men came out of Jerusalem and they had a slightly different message. They said, yeah, 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 believing in Jesus is right and good. That's great. We're so pleased you believe it's in Jesus. But if you really want to belong to God as his friend, if you really want to be justified, well, actually, you need to now get circumcised. And after you've gotten circumcised, we'll teach you how to obey all of the law of Moses, the traditions of the elders, etc., etc., etc. And Paul saw straight through this and its satanic origin." You foolish Galatians, he writes, who has bewitched you. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd just like to know one thing from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Paul knows darn well that the answer is they received the Holy Spirit, came on them in power when they believed, and none of them were circumcised. So circumcision is irrelevant, isn't it? It's irrelevant to being God's friend. He he, he takes them as they are. The moment they believe, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And if they now figure, oh, better make sure, I, I better just make sure I'm God's friend, I know I'll get circumcised. Well, what they've actually done is they've stopped trusting in what God has done for them, and they're now trusting in what they can do for God, in their own good works. And actually, that's slavery. Paul wrote, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. It is slavery because having obeyed the false teachers, having put them in the place of authority they'd have to keep on obeying them, leading them into greater and greater dependence upon them and them leading them in a never-ending spiral of increasingly neurotic religious observance as though their very souls depended upon it because that was what they were being taught. Paul saw it clearly. You can put your faith in Jesus or you can put your faith in Jerusalem, but not both. Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, and many, many others saw it clearly in their day. You can put your faith in Jesus or in Rome, but not both. The gospel of Medieval Roman Catholicism was a spiritual servitude that put a clerical elite in control over millions of people, leading them into a never-ending spiral of increasingly neurotic religious observance as though their very souls depended upon it. Martin experienced all of that for himself. And then he understood the gospel and was set free. So the way to break that power trip was to put God's word directly into everybody's hands, so saving and empowering them. Now, now, if they've got the the Bible in their own hands, now if the church spoke about baptism or the Lord's Supper or marriage or priests and bishops, indulgences, relics, the intercession of the saints, etc., etc., the boy who driveth the plow, he could see for himself just how wrong they were, which is to say, extremely wrong, wildly wrong. That's what it meant for them then. What does it mean for us today to have the Bible in our hands? To be able to read it privately and publicly in our own language without fear of being burnt at the stake? Well, firstly, we should never take that for granted, should we? We should never take for granted both the privilege and the responsibility of having God's word in in our hands. What should we do with it? Well, secondly, what we should do with it is we should read it every day. Why should we read it every day? Well, because it is God's word and it functions as God's word. It does God's work. And what is God's work? God's work is to lead us to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. That's how we know it's God's word. It functions as God's word. Converting us, molding us, shaping us in God's image seen in the image of Christ. Now, I've struggled long and hard over how to technically explain how this all works. And here's my explanation. You either get it or you don't. But by God's extraordinary grace, I get it. Uh, Like many, many others, like a vast sea of others, I I became a Christian through reading the Bible for myself. A a New Testament was put into my hands by a Gideon man on the campus of the University of Western Australia on or around 1990. And I I didn't read it straight away. I, I didn't pick it up for two years. But two years later, I did so. I did so secretly late at night after everyone had gone to sleep for fear of being discovered reading a Bible. I started with the book of Romans and then went back and read my, read my way forward through the Gospels a few chapters at a time. And after about two months of this, I knew I just had to ask Jesus to forgive me for my sins, for ignoring him and breaking his rules, and I had to surrender my life to him, which I did at Easter time in 1992. 1992. The decision point for me, I remember the decision point for me really came about the 13th chapter of Matthew, um, the parable of the sower. And I can remember precisely the impression that that parable made on me. And I can recognize that at that time I was interpreting it in a completely different manner to how I would interpret it now. But that doesn't matter. It's not a question of interpretation. That's a red herring, ultimately, because what was happening to me was God's word was functioning as God's word, drawing me to Jesus so that I might know the Father by the Spirit. It was functioning as God's word. It was just doing its job. That's all it was doing. And I knew it was true. I just knew it. I wasn't particularly happy about that. I thought the gospel was an inconvenient truth, uh, to borrow somebody else's phrase. And it was going to be tremendously embarrassing to come out of the closet as a born-again Christian. But I couldn't shake or resist the conviction from the Bible that Jesus is who he says he is, and that I needed to give my life to him. It is for that reason that I too love from time to time to stand on street corners and give out New Testaments. It's for that reason that many of us love from time to time to give out tracts with Bible verses on them. And it is for that reason that many of us love to invite friends and family who don't know Jesus and say to them, would you like to, read, would you like to get together to read the Bible with me? They do that in order that God's word might function as God's word, drawing people to Jesus. And just as rain and snow fall from the sky, well, snow doesn't fall from the sky here in Perth, but I believe it does in other places. Just as rain and snow fall from the sky coming down from heaven, so to speak, and it waters the land so that the land produces vegetation and crops, so God has made himself this promise. God's word goes out there into the world, and it's not going to return to him empty-handed. It will achieve the purpose God has for it, bringing people into relationship with the Father through the Son in the power of God. Of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 55, just in case you're wondering. Well, Scripture has greater authority than the church because it gives birth to the church. Scripture is clear, it does not require a clerical elite to interpret it for us. It is sufficient, it teaches us the gospel and enough about the gospel for us to know how to respond and to know how to live and also for us to know how to spot alternate Gospels that we might resist them. But Paul says, look, even if we, even if I, even if an angel from heaven should preach a Gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a Gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And these things are important. The Lord be with you.